0: Welcome to the Magazine Debrief podcast. I'm John Severs, and I'm joined as usual by Dan Wirth. Hi, Dan. Hi there. And Gronja Hallahan. Hi, Gronja. Hello. And this week we are looking at the 2nd of April edition of the magazine. Let's get started. So the first feature we're looking at this week, Gronja, is all about exams and how long students spend taking them.
1: It is indeed. And we've got Martin Noon and Charlotte Noon, a married teacher a couple team, who teach maths and English and they took this feature on and they, they did some research into what teachers actually think about how their students perform in exams when they've got time constraints and they're going to tell us a little bit more about it now. Hello and welcome everybody. I'm joined by Martin and Charlotte Noon, teachers of maths and English respectively, who are the writers of our cover feature this week. Thanks for talking to me both of you. Hi. Hi. So let's start off with you explain to me the feature that you've written. Could you sum up what, you, what you've written about this week?
2: Well, uh, we were looking at um, timing exams. Uh, are the time constraints um, that are given to students in exams, are they you know, long enough? Uh, does it actually give uh, a full picture of the ability of the students as they sit them? We know that there are pupils that get extra time um, for exams due to, to access arrangements, but do maybe other students also require extra time to show their full potential?
1: And what did you find out? These are big questions. What did you find out in your research when you're researching this piece?
3: Yeah, they are, they are big questions. So um, we started looking at the idea that in the real world, actually, we're very rarely expected to um, recall facts from memory under time limits. Often we have a lot more time. Um, and that actually, the, a lot of the teachers in the survey that we did um, were saying that they didn't believe that the tests accurately reflected the ability of all the students. And um, a staggering amount actually believed that there were a lot of students who would benefit from the extra time, but actually hadn't been flagged up as students who would receive that. So
2: that was quite an interesting mm. find. I managed to find some I say find some academic research was available. There was like one piece of research that I managed to find um about speed tests and power tests and the differences between them uh and and this this concept of speededness uh and about that if a speed test is is designed so that all the questions are easy so the students should be able to basically never get them wrong. Expect how many they can do in, a, in a, a lot of time. Whereas a power test would be a case of how can someone perform, but without any sort of time constraint. And obviously, our systems for GCSEs, for Key Stage Two SATs, for A Levels, it's like a try to a mix of the both really. They're trying to merge the two aspects, and has it really been done properly? And and we found that you know research shows that. Having time constraints can, you know, heighten anxiety, can mean that people underperform. We know that, that you know, nowadays, stress of exams is quite a, a major factor. Uh, we know that people complain about not having enough time to do their exams. And, you know, as we know, in, in later in life, we don't have the same sort of time constraints for, for tasks.
3: Yeah, and we've, we found there was a bit of a, an imbalance that, for example, in the GCSE English, it seemed to have been set up as a power test, but actually done under speed. So the students are so focused on getting a mark a minute that actually they're not able to show that same depth of of understanding that they might be able to show if they weren't put under the time limits.
1: And there is, I mean, I, I know more about English than I do about maths. And although you two are clearly natural enemies, you you have married each other and have written this piece and <laughs> And looked at the the two different issues, but in English, you do need more time to think don't you it's It's more about letting that idea percolate and you come to the the correct conclusion because you've thought about it and that that time like what uh, how how is that even possible to measure sometimes like how long a student could have a few more minutes and come to a really interesting and thoughtful analytical like conclusion of something when when isn't that the more desirable? Like, just give a little bit more time, so they can have more time to think about it. And like you say, the, it's the English language, isn't it? That's that really speedy focus on like go on to the next one, go on to the next next one. And there isn't enough time really to think about the bigger ideas we're expecting them to, to consider.
3: Yeah, and as well, we found that those with slower processing speeds also struggled with the amount that they needed to read of previously unseen. Um, previously unseen texts in the English language exam.
1: And what do you think teachers should take away from reading your piece? What are you hoping that they'll, they'll do once they've finished reading it? And what, what could, how could this change what they do in the classroom?
3: I think really it's just a, an awareness of the fact that it isn't just sense students who are affected by the timings that actually it seems to be a much larger proportion of students that are perhaps not able to pursue the futures they were hoping to pursue purely because of the timing around exams not that they wouldn't be capable not that they didn't have the knowledge but that they simply weren't able to demonstrate it within the time limits
2: and it's not just you know teachers it's 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 you know schools it's exam boards it's it's anyone in charge of of, of you know forming an exam's it's, it's to realize that are we testing today's students the right way are is you know with with what's gone on is there potential to for, for for a change that's going to allow everyone to show the potential do we need to to maybe go back to to other systems that we had in place years ago that nothing's been perfect you know we, we've never had something that's that's worked perfectly um but there are still obvious issues with with what we have got set up and i know it's the same in many other countries as well um but you know we need to consider that that later in life we don't necessarily have these same sort of you know time constraints with 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 exams um and some people can go on to do amazing things but they've they've done it in their own time later in life, where they they didn't succeed at school or college. But then, when they've had the time to show they did have that potential, they've then gone on, you know, formed those skills, got those qualifications in other ways, and and gone to be a success in in a field that maybe school or college or or educational systems said they didn't have the ability to do.
1: Oh, well, thank you both for giving up your time. This is ever so interesting, and I hope. Everybody enjoys reading the article this week. Thank, Thank you.
0: you. Thank you for that for that lovely interview, Gronia, first of all. Uh, and secondly, I think this is an interesting topic, isn't it? Because when I remember exams, I don't particularly remember the content, but I do remember clock watching and thinking, how much time do I have per question? Um, do I skip a one that I don't particularly want because of one marker and try and do the full marker instead? And reading this feature made me think how... I viewed those exams logistically, not necessarily educationally. And I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing.
1: Reading this feature completely changed my point of view on times of exams. Like I went in thinking exam times are a good thing. Like, it, And we've even talked about it before. And I've said about how it's important because it's a, it's a good judge of set, like sorting out people who are, who are quick minded and that's a, that's a desirable quality to have. And I've completely changed my mind on it. And I think that they make a really good case for the fact that it's not like the real world. In the real world, we don't have time constraints and actually allowing everybody, not just those that we've selected to, to be given extra time, allowing being a bit more flexible with that idea will, is a better test of, of, our, of our children. And, and, and what we've it wouldn't be, there's no perfect system, but there's definitely room for improvement when it comes to exam timings.
0: Dan, have you got horror stories
4: about well, running out of time? The thing about exam time is interesting. It made me think, one thing, and John, you'll, you'll remember this, I, I think, is doing the shorthand exam is an exam that's like anything else because it's four minutes long, I think I'm right in saying. You listen to someone speaking for four minutes at 100 words per minute, you transcribe it, and then you have to have about 15 minutes to write it up. And in that context, you you have to have a time limit because of the nature of what you're being tested on. It has to last period of time to match the hundred words per minute or however long it lasted. And it wouldn't be four minutes then, would it? It would have been something else. But the point about that exam was so weird because if you made one, if you missed one bit, you'd kind of failed because you had to get a certain transcription correction rate, you know. And if the first time I ever did it, I failed it because I was transcribing and I just lost my train of thought, oh. fumbled, and then it, you were behind and you were never going to catch you literally, it was impossible to catch up because you'd missed a bit. Anyway, that sounds
1: nightmarish. It was
4: horrendous. You've never done it's like you you don't get like 10 minutes thinking time. It's like Right, it's off and you've got, and you just gotta keep going all the way through and then transcribe it. Anyway, it's a different type of thing. But I just I say some exams do have to have a time component to kind of because yeah. that's the part of the skill. And is that not sometimes the part of the skill of the exam is you know lots of things, but you've got to pass down and work out what are the most pertinent things here. And if you've got all the time in the world well no, that's unrealistic, you know what I mean, then um you're gonna have more chance of getting it right in a way that maybe dilutes the, the skill you're trying to find out, which is How well someone Mm. works at what they need to get across in that short time limit, whether that's an hour or ten minutes, who does it? Who does it best? Which I guess brings us into what are exams for anyway, which is we've Mm. we've talked about before as well. But so yeah, it's interesting. I can see why sometimes though the time is sort of an arbitrary pressure that then also removes the ability for someone to really show their best. So it's it's a difficult one, but maybe it's it's interesting. Again, good to talk about it because I think it's something that's for too long maybe we've just kind of assumed, oh yeah, you know, an hour and a half for an exam, that's the best model. And it's like, well, is it? You know.
1: And did, when you were at university, were you at, and when I did my A-levels, after a certain amount of time, you were allowed to leave an exam. And if you wanted, yeah, do you remember that? And then yeah, we yeah. decided it was too disruptive to do that, so they stopped doing it. And being like the sort of ultra-competitive weirdo that I was, I wanted to always leave <laughs> as early as possible. So I'd want to write as much as I could and then be like the first to
4: walk out. I couldn't do that because I'd want to, I just feel like, I mean, I think I'd have thought I'm wasting, you know, you only get so much time. Yeah. To, and what if you then walked out and think, Oh, I didn't put that down or I made a spelling mistake. I couldn't do that. I'd ha- I think I'd have had to say to the end.
1: It's really self destructive. Really mm. like it was it was ridiculous and it was I'm so glad they don't let kids do that anymore because it mm. definitely plays into those people that want to really push themselves to like the nth like point. Mm. And it's 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 silly because it's not it's so so counterproductive. It's so stressful.
0: I found the anxiety stuff quite fascinating because, mm-hmm. you know, the, that last 15 minutes of an exam, essentially your performance dips because of anxiety. And yeah. I think for the most part that did. But I do remember an English exam at university where I, I, I started answering one question. I got about 20 minutes in and thought, a bit like I do with my leaders sometimes, and thought this is crap. I'm, I, I, this isn't the question. And I started another one. So I did the whole exam in 40 minutes rather than an hour. And I got my best mark on that exam because the adrenaline just went mad. And I was writing like a demon with my spider handwriting. Like, you know, I write like a left-handed person with my right hand. It's appalling. I've still got a palmer grip. And so, you know, smudging ink across his paper. it felt like I was in a war. And I, I actually did really well, but that was quite an anomaly. And the, the anxiety one really struck home because as soon as you see that clock ticking, and it goes quite slowly to halfway. Then I find after halfway, it starts speeding up in your perception. Mm-hmm. And you do panic. You're like, Christ, which question do I do? I need to get this down. And it's that cognitive load argument is that if you're thinking more about the time than what you're doing, then how are we, how are we expecting people to get to have an accurate record of what someone knows? It's, you know, We're trying to reduce the, the load, not increase the load.
1: And, you know, we're talking about secondary school exams and further ed exams and higher education exams, but also for the primary school students when they t- when they sit their Sats. I mean, when I don't know many teachers that would look at those SAT papers and think, "Oh, this is this is a well, well designed test." Yeah. <laughs> there, I sat and for a, a TES article, I think, and I like had to go through every single question, and there were so many repetitive, like testing exactly the same skills, same number of marks, and surely children get fatigued after a while is it, is it really necessary i think exam design and test design is an art form really and mm. are the tests that we're giving our students at the moment the best possible tests they could be i don't i don't think all of them are
0: i think that's a nice place to uh end this discussion and see what you guys think so please do get in touch and give us some feedback on martin's and charlotte's feature um about exam speed because i think it, it you will go like gronja into this feature with a preset idea and it, and it will really challenge what you what you do think about this issue okay so the second feature we're going to look at is about nudge and this is something that Dan's going to explain that me and Gronje got quite excited about because Gronje went to a conference once and like true journalists, we, we, we sort of got inspired by it. So Dan, tell us about Nudge.
4: Well, I am, but I'm going to do a short version then you guys take over because you sound like you're way more into it than me. Um, but this is a piece uh, in the leadership section by Joe Clement. It's talking about using Nudge behaviour theory to sort of improve the way students might behave. And she uses a really good example about littering and how simply, you know, barking orders at people to stop littering or pick up your litter. It's like, well, if that worked, there wouldn't be litter everywhere, would there in a school or indeed in society? And actually, sometimes it's more about subtle, sort of make people do something that they think they want to do themselves, but actually you've sort of, you know, I suppose you could say manipulate it, but, but in, a, in a sort of positive way for them to do it. And, and one thing she talks about is... Um, the image. If you, it's been shown that if you place images of eyes in a, in a place where people sort of know they should do a certain thing, it's been shown to sort of make them behave in a better way. Um, and where I live, they actually did a test like this where they put a pair of eyes on a sign that said, you know, turn your engine off when you're idling at the crossroads, the train crossroads, because people just sat with their car engine running. And when they put the eyes on these things, it, it showed that they were more likely to turn their engine off, even though the wording was exactly the same. Um, just interesting little things like that, isn't it? And it shows that sometimes there is, humans are, not always susceptible to do what I tell you, what be- ways of being engaged with. And actually, you can get people to do something other ways. And I think, you know, little subtle things like saying, oh, do you know that 90% of most students hand their work in on time? Might make that 10% and then think, oh, I don't want to be in that 10%. Maybe I should do it rather than saying, you must hand your work in on time, which is like, well, they don't anyway. So that's not going to work. Over to you two, though. Go on.
0: I, I'm i fascinated by it because I used to write a lot for a retail publication, and the level of nudge that retailers use is insane. Mm. And the way they design stores, IKEA being a prime example of this, or the way they arrange clothing and arrange stuff in eyeline, and it's just there's so much nudging going on of your behavior. You think you're an autonomous being walking around a shopping center, you are an automaton designed by a very, very, <laughs> a very very clever sociologist somewhere. And I, I, I find it fascinating from that point of view and from a policy point of view in the sense that, you know, this, this sort of nudge went mainstream a little bit with David Cameron's government and mm. um, they had the nudge unit. And we can still see some of that. I mean, the famous example is that at the moment, well, the most prominent example is that we had the two metre rule. And the two- meter rule was designed because they wanted you to be at least a meter and a half away, and they knew that if you said a meter and a half," you you, you go for a meter. and so it's all this understanding of human behavior that I find quite fascinating.:
1: It is fascinating because we think that we're like autonomous and we you know right influenced by these things, and we can be made to do stuff so easily. <laughs> Mm. but it's it's almost comical. I really enjoyed the piece. I thought there were some interesting ideas in there and things that, you know, I've I've heard about before, particularly like the loss aversion idea. I think students definitely will be uh, susceptible to this idea that if you tell them if they don't take this opportunity then they're missing out. And um and I've seen teachers use that and it to great effect. One thing I don't know if I think it would necessarily work, is the idea that the word association, so putting up words like happy and positive and determined on the walls will necessarily make people adopt those characteristics. And I'm basing that purely on the fact that when I used to do break duty at my last school, they had a big mural of all the characteristics they they wanted the children to to have at that school. And that was where all the kids used to stand to smoke and I used to have to chase them out. So... (laughs) i don't i don't think that anecdotal
0: evidence
1: anecdotal evidence that i'm it's my anecdota and i'm sticking with it <laughs>
0: <laughs> well i think um nudge is nudge is a really interesting area for for school leaders to read up on because i think there there is a sort of learning by rote if you like or or, or by replication in leadership because some of the leadership courses aren't that great um and so you have this, this, this set way of doing stuff. And I think by reading up on Nudge, you can open your eyes to different ways of leading. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a right or wrong way. It's just different. And it will just diversify, um, diversify practice, I think.
1: And these ideas, I think, will work on your staff as much as your
0: children. As in your personal family. Gone. Yeah, do you nudge, do you <laughs> nudge. Why not? Why not? No, I meant the children in the school. There, your kids have to walk past their homework to to get to to get to a cake at the end of the kitchen or something like that. Like your whole home is optimized for nudge. That would be amazing. Like, it be great yeah you just, you funnel them around your house like you're in ikea so you can't actually get to the cafe in, unless you walk through to, yeah, yeah. the washroom <laughs> or something I, i've got grand visions of your nudge home now Gronio. um well check out that feature because i think it, it's another good conversation starter Okay, so feature-free, we're doing four today. So, you know, we may seem like we're rattling through them, but we've got a lot to cover. So feature-free, we've got another guest on the podcast, and this one is all about maths and overcoming maths anxiety, but not the maths anxiety of pupils necessarily, but the parents.
1: That's right. We have Emma-Kate Stokes, and she's going to explain to us the approach that she took in her school to get her parents on board with the more modern maths teaching techniques. I'm joined by Emma Kate Stokes, who is a primary school teacher in East Sussex, and she is the author of the how-to piece in the magazine this week. Thank you for joining me, Emma.
5: Thank you so much for having me. So let's
1: talk about what you explain in the magazine. So what is your how-to?
5: Um, So I'm discussing how as a maths lead, I've been working with parents to turn them into math enthusiasts. Um, So often maths is something that parents and carers really worry about when it comes to ensuring that they are helping their children effectively. And so often I've heard, I'm not good at maths or I don't have a maths brain. And the feature is really about breaking down those barriers and getting our parents and carers on board. So in the feature, I just discuss what I did in my previous school in um, London, which was in a pre-COVID world, and the steps that we put in place to build our relationships and offer support via some workshops and some one-to-one bespoke sessions for less confident parents. And the real key for us as a school was working collaboratively with our parents and ensuring that there was a partnership there. You know, as
1: you were saying that, I know that I've been guilty of that in the past and saying to students, like, oh, I'm just not very good at maths. I'm good at English, but I'm not good at maths. And I read an article about why that was so damaging to, to sort of normalise that I'm bad at maths. We wouldn't say it about hardly any other subject. You wouldn't, or even have it as like a badge of pride, like, oh, I'm bad at maths. It's OK, because I'm just bad at maths. And it's, it's lazy thinking, isn't it? Because the truth is, I'm not actually bad at maths. I just find maths trickier. And I think saying to kids, like, it's like, oh, oh, I think I would even say like, oh, I hate maths. Maths is the enemy of English and I joke about it. And it's, it's so silly, like to an adult, you can say it amongst adults and that's fine. But when you're saying it to really young, impressionable children who often really look up to you, it's not healthy, is it? It's not a good, it's not good role
5: modelling. The children really do absorb that and take that in as well and this was one of the key messages that we were trying to get across with our parents so it wasn't just about having maths knowledge it was also about creating a culture where maths was seen as something positive mm-hmm. and a lot of my research in the piece um Features and discusses maths anxiety. And it really is a, a very real issue for our parents and culture uh, carers because part of our everyday culture is, like you were saying, maths is hard. And we've seen that during all the various lockdowns we've had this year. We've all seen those articles in different papers and the memes. I'm poking fun at how hard children's maths is and parents don't understand why it's not as easy as it was for them when they were at school. Do
1: you know the one that I like the best is the video of that guy going, this is how we do it in 2021. Yes. He's like, <laughs> six million boxes. Like, this is how we did it in the 80s. And it's like, just a quick calculation. But the point is, and I think, please correct me if I'm wrong, but the point is the way that we teach children to do it now is to actually understand what the calculation is that they're doing, like that they're understanding that it's the number sense. That's right, isn't it?
5: It's about deepening their conceptual understanding and not just that rote learning. So Actually, when they're multi- when they're looking at an equation um, four multiplied by two, they're actually looking at what that means rather than just learning the answer is eight. So what does it mean to make groups of? How do we do that? Using concrete materials, seeing it in various representations to deepen that understanding and solidify that conceptual understanding. And for parents, once they understand that then they start to enjoy maths more themselves because alongside their children learning, they're also learning the maths. See,
1: I I remember when when we first discussed this piece, when you first pitched it to me, and it totally tallies up with my own experience with my daughters and teaching them maths because I was going down there, just memorise it, just memorise your times tables. And they hated it. And then I interviewed Joe Bowler, and a few other people for a piece that I was writing about times tables, which I think is out next week. And um, it made me realise that I was going about it all wrong. And then, when, when locked, and during lockdown, and my children have been coming home or been doing their, their maths work at home. And I, is it like function trees? Like the how, like fifteen's the number, and then it's like 10 plus five, five plus 10, and all the the different ways of working it out. And I never, I definitely didn't do that when I was at school. And and a lot, and that's another thing that I've seen shared a lot on social media parents parents saying like what is this? Like what's the point of this? But it's getting that familiarity with the numbers and feeling confident with playing with numbers and getting that number sense. So when you come to your answer, you've got the you can look at it and see if it's right because you you've got the senses that you should you should be able to roughly estimate what it should be. Does that make sense?
5: And in why it's right as well, it makes complete sense. So you've got the why behind it. I think that's really important, that children are learning the why about things. They're not just learning what the answer is, they're learning why it is the answer.
1: And, you know, obviously, I'm a huge fan of of the English, the subject of English, because I taught it for so long, and I will always believe that it is the queen of all the subjects, but... I will acknowledge that maths is so important for your adult life. Like I, I have been in tears in shops before. Do you know what really gets me? Working out the price per gram, like you know, when they give it per hundred grams, and like trying to work out which is the cheapest. And I, I remember being in Costco with my husband and crying because like our I frustration, because he couldn't understand why I couldn't work out which one was cheap. I was getting really cross with him. Like, but I just don't get it. Like, leave me alone. I don't understand maths. And it's all right. That's a very small example, but being able to have the the sense to pick the cheapest option. And and even when it comes to things like um your salary and making wise decisions, making savvy decisions about what your big purchases are, like cars and houses and which mortgage to go for and Paying the tax, I I've, I've found
5: so many parents when I was um, doing the workshops, and I was doing one for upper key stage two. and A parent actually said to me afterwards, I finally understand why I pay the tax I do and why my gross salary is different yes. to this. and actually because they are they they get percentages now and um that's the most frequent feedback that I really receive from parents and carers is that they understand what they're doing and they they understand what they're doing with their children now and why they are doing it so it, it really has been all of these things that we've done that I talk about um in the piece has been about building up adult confidence as well as ensuring that the children are getting what they need at home.
1: And when the when, what you do in school and the amount of time that you have to spend on maths in the school day, when you compare it to the amount of time that child will spend with somebody at home talking about maths, it, it's tiny really, isn't it? Like you've, you need to have the buy-in from parents to support what you're doing at school because if a parent's teaching a child a different approach at home, and encouraging them to use a different way of doing the calculation or, or working out a, a method, or it not—it doesn't undermine it necessarily, but it is confusing for a child, isn't it?
5: It's confusing, and it can just create lots of little misconceptions. So, if parents and carers with the best of intentions are teaching their children a, a method that they learned when they were. At school, for example, when dividing, just take away a zero, for example, that can really undermine what's going on in the classroom when you're starting from ground zero, so to speak. You are, you are starting from the bottom to build up that conceptual understanding. And so often I've had a child saying, well, I, I can do this. I've done it at home and they can do it. But they don't understand why they're doing it and they've got no real reason for why they're doing it so yes they would get the tick sometimes in the sats paper but they don't there's no understanding there and i think it's we want to give these children a really well rounded education in maths they deserve it it's their right to have that and working with parents and having that parental collaboration and carer collaboration means that we're all singing from the same hymn sheet and it's part of the school culture and part of the home life culture as well.
1: And that can only be better, like going forward, can't it? Exactly. This utopian future where all the children understand and all the parents and everybody loves maths and nobody fears it. and Math anxiety doesn't exist anymore. That's the dream, isn't it?
5: What
1: a world to live in. And then when we've done that, then we'll tackle the spelling issues, right? Oh,
5: that's a that's wonderful <laughs> class.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Emma. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely.
0: Thank you for that little brief uh, interview, Gronya. Okay, so feature four, and this is me talking about this one. And it's a uh, column from Margaret Moore Holland, who's a really, really, really interesting commentator on send um and she she's run special schools she's now at school but she always every month in her in her column she always makes me think and i think this week was really pertinent because she's talking about the gender angle of send and how how we view and label child behavior on a gender basis so she uses the example of autism where autism was thought of as a male male condition so you know all the all the specifications and diagnostics for autism was set up for how it presented in boys as such girls were thought not to get autism if that's something you can get um yet as adults suddenly lots of women were finding that they were getting a, an autism diagnosis and slowly over the last decade we've seen a real shift to say oh hang on you know girls with autism present very differently and you know they they can be very outward in their social um social relationships they can have very few social barriers in fact um and margaret makes the point that actually you know that's not an isolated case and she uses the example of ADHD where we're having this similar awakening to the fact that for so long it's been a male condition and it, and the the prerequisites for diagnosis have been very centered around male behaviors and We're getting the same thing with autism now, where there's lots of adult females saying, "Hang on, I've suddenly got an explanation for my feelings and how I was at school, and it was actually that I had ADHD, but it was completely missed." And it really struck me how badly affected a lack of diagnosis diagnosis had had on those on those women, and how they never had an explanation or the support they needed, and. I guess for me, this conversation is not specifically about ADHD, but it's about, we have this perennial conversation about labeling, you know, why do we need to label someone as autistic? Why do we need to label something as, as as someone as ADHD? And actually this feature goes some way to, to explaining why some form of label is necessary in my mind.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, we looked at this a little bit when we did the, um, the diagnosing yourself on the internet like parents diagnosing their children themselves and the not the power that a label gives you but understanding what your diagnosis is and being able to put things in place and being able to to self manage your condition is is really really important and the fact that ADHD is underdiagnosed in girls and the fact that autism is under diagnosed in girls it just it reminds me of the book invisible women and the fact that the world is built for men and with men in mind and it's really important that schools don't fall into this trap of ignoring the the girls in their, their schools and not understanding that sometimes these conditions present differently in girls than they do in boys.
4: Yeah, I wrote something about um, autism in girls a, a while ago and talking about some of the, the masking characteristics that, that girls have. And, and the same thing comes up here in that they're better at hiding it or the, the way it manifests in them is, is easier to miss because it's not the kind of loud you know, element of ADHD. can be the more sort of, um, you know, the the element sort of internalizing um, and that can look like being a daydreamer or something like that. But I suppose it's always a bit difficult, isn't it? Because you don't want to start someone who just has an idle moment in the classroom and then start over worrying about if they've got a condition that you then need to bring up. But also, I think, John, your point is absolutely correct that a label... I remember writing that piece about autism and, and they were saying that, you know, older women, as in not children, when they got that diagnosis in adulthood, they were happy because it explains a lot of things about them from their childhood, that which then made them more sort of, you know, you can contextualize why you behaved in a certain way or whatever, or why you did so well at school or not, or however it might be. Um, and so I think it's important, I think, being aware of it. And like I said, with so many things, isn't it, where we look back and we think, oh, why were we so blind to that x years ago and it's like well this is something else now isn't it? it's like adhd you're right it's, it's so easy to spot a, i can imagine to spot a boy behaving in a certain way in a playground and think oh you know or in classroom and thinking hmm, they might have a condition and the girl's doing has the same condition but presentatively, but we just so we just think oh well there's nothing there and it's like well hang on a minute let's one thing doesn't manifest in one way you know there are different ways and we've got to be alert to that and then if we are we can help more and, and help is the most important thing so i think it's it, you're right it's a really good piece for just raising that kind of hang on a minute let's think again about this and that's sometimes the most important thing in the topic isn't it is not just take everything at face value and received wisdom but to stop and go but is that right do we know that why do we know that and then question why we do and then realize that actually we don't know it i think as well it's it's this notion of how you know i can see
0: from a teacher's perspective they okay here's another thing Mm. and i think there is a problem here that there is a lot of stuff that kids need support on right across the spectrum. Not to use that in an autistic context, but in, in in a wider context, there's a lot of stuff here, and we either have to decide that this is a this is something that happens in schools, and we train and we resource that properly. Because at the moment, you know, you talk to senkos, they'll say they spend four days out of five doing paperwork because the lengths you have to go to to get support and the hoops you have to jump through are so so large that the actual hands-on support and diagnosis is quite minimal part of their job because it's just capacity so if we're going to say this is something that happens in schools well let's train it and let's resource it properly and if it's if we're not going to train it and resource it properly then why are we leaving this to schools what function in society is going to make these diagnosis and pick these kids up you know is it a longer period of sort of healthcare support worker work where you know there are experts coming into the home. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but I think the current status quo is that we know there's a problem, but we, we haven't got a system that's going to change it as such without pushing teachers right to the limit of what we're expecting of them.
3: Mm.
1: And it's that growing teacher-student ratio that's just getting worse every single year that makes spotting these sorts of things even harder and it's not just the class size but just the number of adults and trained teachers you have in a school is dropping when you consider the number of kids in a school and for the the bulge that was in primary is now coming up coming up to secondary and if it was missed in primary it's now going to be missed again in secondary and you know when when will these these pupils get the support they need it's, it's it really is it's, a, it's an increasing concern and I can't see how it's going to get better
0: it takes us back a bit to that um to the cover feature if we're going to come full circle and be be incredibly professional podcasters which we are um you know what martin and charlotte talk about is is a is that kids aren't all the same and Mm -hmm. that we are pushing them into a time bracket that's probably it's a bit like um the you know the averages, I've gotten the book, but there's a great book about averages and the fact that, you know, they tried to build a, a, a fighter plane for the average fighter pilot and it didn't fit any of them. And it feels a bit like we have a school system sometimes that is designed for the average child and the average child doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And yes, And yes. we have this exam system where, you know, you have an hour and a half for this exam based on what, like based on, you know, where's that, you know, Who's, who's your ideal, who's the pupil in your mind that requires five minutes for that question, eight minutes for that question? Because I bet there isn't a, a kid who will fit that mold. And I guess what we're talking about on the SEND level is actually these, these children aren't like, this isn't a barrier to education. It's, it's, a, it's a, something they need support for in different degrees, and it needs to be quite flexible. And it takes you back again to that time and resource. You know, we can deal quite easily with a label here's adhd here's an adhd intervention well actually it needs to be a lot more nuanced than that but no one has time so Mm. where do we go from that really yep it's a very sobering point but i think you're absolutely right a bleak end to the podcast but uh hopefully a positive impact afterwards maybe like i think there's just having the discussion isn't it
3: yeah having the
0: discussion and that's what we're here for and so we will be back with more discussion uh, next week uh, with a cover feature around curriculum, I believe. So uh, we'll be back discussing the 9th of April edition uh, in a week's time. Thank you very much for listening.
4: If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tes magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tes.com forward slash
1: store.